0: Blog Talk Radio. Hello again. Thanks for joining for another new episode of the A.J. Bruno Show. Today my guest is Rabbi Daniel Lapin. We'll be discussing the role of faith in politics today and Jewish-Christian relations. So we'll have him on in just a second. Uh, we're going to dive into some subjects we've explored before, but this time, it's going to be from a different perspective, and I believe we have him on the line now. So uh, without further ado, uh, Shalom, and uh, thanks for being with us.
1: You're most welcome. I'm delighted to be on the show with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Sure. So uh, could you start by telling us about uh, your background? Uh, What was it like growing up Jewish in South Africa, and uh, what led you from being an engineer to uh, rabbinical studies?
1: Um, Well, as far as growing up, you know, pretty much the same as anyone everywhere. Uh, My father uh, was a distinguished rabbi, and so obviously I knew from the youngest age that without any doubt whatsoever regarding my future career prospects, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what I wanted to be when I grew up, uh, which was a pirate, and um, it, it, was clear, it was clear to me that uh, the, the very last thing I was ever going to be was a rabbi. And, uh, and uh, it just goes to show that uh, when the good Lord has plans for you, you ignore them at your peril. And, um, and ignore them I did. I uh, went off to become an engineer, and uh, I worked for the Dutch Electronics Company, and I was uh, designing communication equipment, uh, the company Philips, and um, I uh, had absolutely no idea before walking in. I had absolutely no idea what this job was actually like on a day-to-day basis. And the way it was on a day-to-day basis was that I said good morning to uh, a few people on my way into my office, and then I sat down at my desk and uh, I started fiddling with the instruments and components and measurements. And, um, and then blessedly, eventually, lunch arrived and I'd go off to the lunch room of the cafeteria and then the afternoon would be repeated the morning. And then once a week, there was a group meeting with all the other designers in the section to make sure that all the little pieces of the big equipment we were designing fitted together. And I've never been so lonely in all my life.
0: Okay. So uh, originally you wanted to move to Israel. Uh, what was it about the U.S. that made you radically change your plan?
1: Well, what, first of all, what uh, what happened in the uh, in at work was that one day at lunch, uh, I sat down next to two other fellows, and we started chatting. And I, you know, what do you do? And they said, uh, well, we're tech reps. Now, I never even knew what that word meant, technical representative. But it's a fancy word for a sales professional. And I said, so what do you do? And they said, well, you know, our job is to sell the stuff you build. And so we go out and uh, we meet with customers. We go from one customer to another and we sit down with them and talk about their needs and talk about ways that our equipment can fulfill their needs. And uh, we we then try and uh, take orders. We bring those back at the end of the day and we're done. I said, so uh, you're never alone during your day. You're always interacting with people. They said, yeah, what about you? I said, well, I'm never alone because I'm always interacting with things. But I can tell you that I'd much rather interact with people than with things and then when I discovered that they typically on uh, commission made about double what I was making on salary, uh, I asked for a transfer to the uh, sales department, and I became a tech rep, and, uh, and I was delighted with that. So that was a, just a, a really good lesson that uh, to be isolated from people is a terrible thing, and it's, it's one of the reasons why deafness is a bigger curse than blindness. Because blindness just isolates you from things, but deafness isolates you from people. And, um, and uh, yeah, uh, the United States of America, well, what interested me uh, here when I first came, and I originally only came for three weeks, but uh, what interested me was that uh, as I was planning a drive across the country, I only had a few weeks, but I really wanted to see everything, like everyone else, And they used to have a little map store. Texaco had a free map store near the Empire State Building in New York. So I loaded up on maps, and I laid them out on my bed in the hotel room, and uh, I started figuring out, okay, well, I'm going to head out to the West Coast. I'm going to take southerly routes I'll be able to uh, see Las Vegas and the Grand Canyon and... uh, and uh, the, the the Tennessee Valley Authority and some of the other things I was interested in. And then I'd go to Los Angeles and San Francisco and then come back via Chicago. And I had it all worked out. So as I'm plotting out my map, my, my route, I notice that um, in Kentucky there's a place called Salem. I thought that's very interesting because uh, Salem is uh, a place mentioned in the book of Genesis. Melchizedek was the uh, the high priest of, of Salem, and he met Abraham. And I thought, well, that's interesting. This is the old biblical name for Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. I, who would have thought that there'd be a Bible place name in the United States? And then I continued, and I saw a Salem in Oregon. And then by that time, I was getting curious. I found a Salem in Massachusetts, and I found 17 other Salems. But by the time I'd done that, I'd found a whole lot of Bethlehems and a whole lot of Canaan and a whole lot of Horebs and a, and a whole lot of, uh, I mean, the, the country is filled with biblical place names. And that is what introduced me to uh, the Old Testament commitment of the founders of this country, which I had known absolutely nothing about. I was a complete ignoramus, but I didn't know. These were people who studied ancient Hebrew wisdom um, to, to an advanced degree, and many of them knew Hebrew. Even uh, William Bradford, who became the second governor of the Plymouth Colony, wrote the first history book ever published in America in the 17th century called The History of the Plymouth Plantation, and the first, oh, about 10 or 12 pages in his, uh, of the manuscript in his own handwriting uh, are in Hebrew, and he speaks about why he taught himself to read and understand Hebrew. So uh, it, it 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 just filled me with uh, enormous excitement to understand that the founders of this country uh, were people who spoke my sort of language.
0: Hmm. That's something I never knew. That's interesting. Well, I guess that explains, at least in part, why that particular generation had so many men of such high character and quality when they you know, were steeped in that knowledge
1: uh, well they, they were steeped in that knowledge but they also um, they, they built the country essentially on the old Hebraic civic model hmm. and that's why the great Scottish historian William Lecky actually wrote that the um, stones of American democracy were cemented with Hebraic mortar that's what he meant and uh, it's it's again you know not an accident that uh they they used a bible a verse from the bible which referred to to god as our judge our, uh, our lawgiver um and uh, and our um boss as it were mm. and from there they got the idea of the division of a government into three sections, the legislature, the judiciary, and the executive, came from that verse in Jeremiah. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, it's why the original um, seal of the United States that the Constitutional Convention assigned to uh, Jefferson and uh, Ben Franklin <coughs> to design, they came back with a design that was eventually not accepted, but everyone loved it and they submitted a the design of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea because they said this parallels the crossing of uh, our fathers to this land in the, in um in, in in pursuit of religious freedom
0: so do you find uh, Judaism and the classifications associated with it do you think it's different in the US um for instance I don't know how you specifically identify but you know I would Maybe compare you more to like a modern Orthodox, but then we have a large group of ultra Orthodox. Um, so, but that doesn't seem like it's something that you know, they don't have the same. Lines uh, those, are ter- those are artificial.
1: Those are artificial terminologies. Uh, the yeah. people that are termed ultra Orthodox are generally people who are dressed in the style of medieval Polish nobleman. but it has absolutely nothing to do with their theology. Um, so uh, all. All Jews who follow the Torah and who are essentially Orthodox, whether they call themselves that or not, um, they all may dress differently, but they all eat only kosher food, and they, they don't drive or use electricity or their computers or cell phones on the Sabbath, etc., etc.
0: So getting more into the uh, political um, aspect here, uh, I had met you actually at a conference years ago, and uh, I was curious uh, since how you ended can you up can remind
1: me which when, conference that was? Oh, it was
0: a student conservative conference. This was back in 2008,
1: summer. And um, where was it?
0: D.C. I doubt you remember.
1: Yeah,
0: but uh, I saw your speech today. I thought it was, thought it was good. Um, so I was curious, how did you first become involved in being a Republican and you know being interested in you know, being uh, conservatively politically active?
1: Well, you see, it, it's obvious to to anybody who delves into it that um, that Western civilization, at its root, springs from the pages of the Bible. And one doesn't only have to explore the uh, liturgical art of Europe, but one merely has to uh, uh, examine even the science. You know, it's it's. Inconvenient fact, um, in Al Gore's terminology, uh, or an inconvenient truth, that uh, about 97, a little more than 97 percent, of all the technological, medical, and scientific discoveries and advances in the world, uh, between the year uh, uh, 900 and the year 1900, or roughly the beginning of World War One all of those took place or occurred in countries that were rooted in the Bible. And it's it's a really important point because um, uh, this is a topic that is seldom discussed in American university campuses uh, as they've become uh, places of academic suppression rather than places of academic exploration. And uh, the, the topic isn't examined simply because they are uh, frantically terrified about looking at africa you know after all um it's it's not hard to see that africa didn't even have writing until the white man arrived you know about you know that's true right right and um there was no there was no scientific there was no city there was no there was at a time where think about the the uh, you know as, as late as the 1500s, where London and Rome were huge cities with with a hundred thousand people or more, and had been for a few hundred years. There was no city anywhere in Africa of as many as fifty thousand people. It didn't exist, and um, academia is terrified of this question because they deep down. Are racists deep down? They assume that uh, people with black skin can't figure out how to do scientific advances or technological developments, and they don't know the simple truth is much clearer than that, which is that Africa never had access to the Bible or to scriptural outlook until the white man uh, brought it, and mm. um, and this made a huge difference because you know you know how. Your child, um, if you give your child a job and say, I can't find my car keys. If you just leave it at that, you're going to get absolutely no worthwhile help from your kid. But if you say, "Um, I definitely lost it in this room. Somewhere in this room are my car keys, and there's an ice cream cone for whoever finds it. Well, you just know that your kid's going to find the keys. Well, the, the amazing thing about the Bible is because it's the only belief system, judeo-christian belief system and nothing else on the planet possesses this one verse in the beginning god created heaven and earth and what that tells you is that uh... in the same way if you want to understand a uh, a dead artist or an inaccessible musician listen to his music or look at his work people understood that if you wanted to understand god what you have to do is look at his work, because the beginning says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So if you want to get to know God, study heaven and earth. That, of course, is the best definition of the physical sciences that exists. Mm-hmm. And so all that happened was that uh, that people who had been educated in the Bible began to be scientists. And, um, and in fact, people like Sir Isaac Newton, for instance, famous for laws of motion and gravitation, um, wrote far more on theology than he ever did on mathematics and physics. And so it was the overwhelming majority from the 11th century onwards through the 18th, uh, the majority of scientific development was done not only in Christian countries, but by Bible-believing scientists. Mm-hmm. So these were really important uh, important realities. Um, you know, it's, it's a sad and tragic fact that uh, in 2018, over 5,000 people drowned trying to get from North Africa to Europe in rickety boats. Okay. That same year, do you want to take a guess how many people drowned in rickety boats going from Europe to North Africa?
0: Uh, zero?
1: Yeah, zero is right. Yeah. And so we have to yeah. ask why are people only trying to go from the third world, Middle East, North Africa. uh, People are trying to immigrate crazily. Why and where? To Bible-based countries. And you might say, well, that's just because where the money is, but that only postpones the question of, but why? Or to put it another way, no capital market ever developed indigenously in a non-biblical country never happened. Now today we have stock exchanges in Accra and in Bangladesh and in Bombay and in Beijing and in uh, um, uh, everywhere, Calcutta, anywhere. Uh, But initially the concept of a capital market grew only out of London and Amsterdam and then was quickly picked up by uh, German and Hanseatic places and, and it grew. But no capital market ever developed indigenously uh, in China or in Africa or in uh, anywhere in Arabia never happened. And in fact, to this day, the, the truth is that uh, it is very hard for an Arabic country to, to produce any advances. Um, no Arabic country has developed a, uh, uh, a bicycle factory, let alone a chip fabrication plant. And it's not because of any intrinsic weakness or any racial explanation, it's just that the Bible provided a guide to these kinds of developments, which was part of what God foresaw for the development of humanity.
0: Everything you said made a, a lot of sense. There's one maybe notable exception that, um, you know, What I'm curious what your take on it is. is um, obviously, there's a group of Ethiopian Jews, and the story goes, uh, you know, that uh, some Jews escaped and went there. Possibly took the Ark of the Covenant, and I mean the fact that they found genetic evidence, they've been practicing Judaism there for millennia. Um, what's your take on that? Is there any truth to that? It's or is actually that not discussion? true.
1: It's not true, and that's why uh, they were asked to undergo religious conversion when they came to Israel. Uh, the whole thing of the Falashas was a fabrication of an out-of-work European academic who decided to put himself on the map by discovering the Lost Tribes, which he essentially tried to do. Uh, Most tribes in Africa separate the women during menstruation, which is not a Jewish custom at all, but they hailed that as the sign that these people must be Jewish.
0: Interesting. I know there was that whole operation to evacuate them to to Israel, but I guess...
1: Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. It was a, a humanitarian thing entirely. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I mean, if you know, if, if you're
1: uh, if you're an Ethiopian, would you rather live in Addis Ababa or in Tel Aviv?
0: Yeah, than <laughs> Israel, but uh, Tel Aviv a little bit hot, but much nicer than uh, Ethiopia.
1: So, yeah, I should um, say.
0: What's that? Yeah. So uh, anyway, getting back to uh, more on the uh, political element here. Uh, one thing that confuses me, I'm, I'm also a Jewish background, I'm, I'm very confused as to why Jews, you know, supposed suppose Jews in the U.S. seem to be overwhelmingly leftist in their views and interpretations of their faith. Could you shed some light on that?
1: Sure, sure. Um, can you just hold on one second? Sure, no problem. Just give me half a second. Susan, yeah. do you need me? Yes, I, I'll just excuse myself for a moment. That sounds good. Uh, okay, so then I, I yeah, okay, sorry. Uh, I'm so I'm so sorry. Okay, so uh, yeah, the reason the reason for that um, is best understood by first of all um, examining whether liberalism and its uh, malign relative socialism are found most commonly among Jews committed to their faith or do you find liberalism and socialism permeating uh, the hearts and minds most of Jews who have abandoned their faith? Do you know the answer to that? Hello? (laughs)
0: Sorry, the last thing was breaking up a little bit.
1: Do you you know the answer to that? What's the answer? Could you hear my question?
0: I'm not sorry. The reception was bad for a moment.
1: Okay. Uh, I said in order to understand the question you ask, you need to analyze whether... Liberalism and its malign sister, socialism, are found mostly permeating the hearts of Jews who are faithful to their tradition? Or do you find liberalism and socialism mostly in the hearts and souls of Jews who have abandoned Judaism as their uh, worldview defining faith?
0: That time I heard it, it's overwhelmingly in the second,
1: um, of course. Correct. And that's, that's a crucial observation because it helps us understand that uh, for Jews who have abandoned the Torah as the central lens through which they perceive reality, uh, in pursuit of a substitute, they enthusiastically embrace and endorse socialism. Now, why is that? And the answer is because In its deepest, most philosophical sense, uh, the world is essentially binary. It's not an accident that the 20th and 21st century breakthroughs were digital and based on a binary system of zeros and ones or yeses or nos or dots or dashes or whatever else it is. But, But there is a fundamental truth to a binary perception, and that is your either your worldview of reality is either God-centric or not. There isn't another choice. Yeah, that's And uh, I'm sorry.
0: No, go ahead, go ahead sir
1: And so uh, the reality is that um, uh, Jews with an extremely strong uh, connection to God, requiring participation in hundreds of commandments, many of them on a daily basis, it's not surprising that that group of people, and this, you know, you can see the same phenomenon you're asking about occurring in the beginning of the 20th century, the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, and the overturning of the, uh, of the Russian monarchy and replacing it with a socialist paradise, uh, was heavily driven by Russian Jews. And as a matter of fact, many of the founders of Israel were unreconstructed Bolsheviks from that period, uh, which is one of the reasons that kibbutzes are such social, or used to be, today they're gone, but they used to be such socialistic paradises. So uh, Jews then, like anybody else, uh, want to be able to answer the, the three fundamental existential questions of life. How did human beings arrive on this lonely, isolated planet in a remote galaxy, in, in a far away solar system? Uh, how did this happen? Where did we come from? That's question number one. And question number two is, and what is the end of the story? Like, what happens at the end of it all? And answer number three, question number three is, and what are we supposed to be doing between arriving and departing? What is the meaning of life? Now, uh, my view, which I I share not only with my fellow Torah-committed Jews, but also with Bible-believing Christians, with whom I'm very friendly, uh, my answer to those three is very simple. Where did we come from? It's very simple. Good Lord created us in his image and put us here. It's pretty straightforward. Now, mm-hmm. I don't expect you to accept that, and I have no proof for it. This is We're talking about beliefs. We're talking about worldviews. Uh, the answer to the second question, which is, uh, what's going to be at the end of it? And, and here, I might have to sit down with my Christian friend, and we might have to um, sort of play with some words on a legal pad over a cup of coffee uh, while we figure out the exact wording we're both comfortable with. But something like, on a day, on a glorious day of God's choosing, there will be uh, some kind of miraculous redemption, in which case, in which uh, good triumphs over evil and a a new period uh, begins. And, uh, And so it is for Christians, it's the return of their Messiah. For Jews, it's the arrival of the Messiah. But, um, but everyone agrees that uh, the end is, is glorious and redemptive. Mm-hmm. And then as, to far, as far as what we're supposed to be doing between the coming and the going, it's, it's pretty simple. You know, we're, we're supposed to do everything we can to make God's kingdom alive here on earth, and, uh, and there we are. Okay, but, but now, what happens if you abandon this? What happens if you're, you don't want to be a Christian, you don't want to be a Jew, and you certainly don't want God injecting himself into every detail of your life? That's you know, not for me. Well, you're still stuck with desperately needing an answer to those three questions. And, uh, and the answers are as follows as to how we got to this planet. The answer is by a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, Primitive protoplasm eventually turned into plumbers and proctologists. That's, that's a belief. They can't prove that. That's why it's called the theory of evolution. It's not called the fact of evolution because it, it's, science can only deal with repetitive phenomena. It can't actually prove anything that hasn't happened or what that did happen a long time ago. Now, a lot of people will insist that it's proven and established, but uh, the truth is that um, things like the Flat Earth Society are out of vogue because nobody believes in the Flat Earth, because it's self-evident to everybody. We live on a spherical planet. Uh, As far as the origin of human beings on this planet, the jury is still out, and if that wasn't so, there wouldn't be hundreds of millions of people. In the United States of America who um, who who actually are not at all sure that it was a materialistic unaided process and as far as what's going to be the end well it's of course it's exactly the opposite of the religious worldview the religious worldview is a glorious redemptive end uh, the secular worldview is that uh, that we're all going to be drowning in a, th- a rising tide of disposable diapers or uh, melting ice caps, which is going to raise sea level. And I keep on trying to get people on the coast of Florida and North Carolina to sell me oceanfront real estate for cheap since it's all going to be flooded out soon. I want it because I don't believe it is going to be flooded out soon. So, um, But they won't sell me. And uh, and so their picture of the future is is horrendous and hopeless and horrible and doomed. And as to f- as far as what they should be doing between the coming and the departing, um, they obviously should be doing everything they can to postpone or eliminate the threats. In answer number two, so things like uh, environmental and. Uh, And uh, it used to be nuclear winter 40 years ago. Uh, It used to be too many human beings, zero population growth. But all the frightening outcomes in answer number two have to be fought against. And, uh, And if some of these things are too big for you to handle by yourself, then you have to get your government to do it. And if they're even too big for your government, you should get a group of governments together to do it. And why don't we call them something like the United Government? No, United Governments doesn't work. I got it. United Nations. And that helps us understand why the left has an almost childlike and naive faith in a United Nations, which has actually never, ever stopped a war or prevented one.
0: Yeah, Yeah, more more great points. Um, So you mentioned kind of a, Glorious, redemptive conclusion. One thing that you know, religious Jews and Christians both agree on is rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Do you see that as a realistic path to this goal, and do you think that's something that's critical? Uh,
1: you know, that's a little bit like um, uh, how worried I am in planning my next trip to the Grand Canyon that uh, there won't be any water in the Colorado River. Um, there's some things that are just off the time scale and uh, they don't really concern me.
0: No. So Judeo-Christian values in general, um, you know, I think that's something which obviously had an important uh, history in this country and Western society in general and a lot of the Bible-believing countries you mentioned. But these days I feel like in a lot of ways, in a lot of these places, we're kind of losing this cultural war. Uh, do you think... We able to turn it around so, you know, What's your whole prognosis on the situation, Matt?
1: Yeah, um, and I, just to mention, I, I, we're pretty much running out of time. You, t- you, you, you told me half an hour, I believe. Is that right? Oh,
0: that's right. Sorry, we're coming up here, so yeah. we'll
1: wrap it up. Okay, later. so uh, I've got I've got to run off to my next interview in the next few minutes, but okay. I want to answer that question, um, and uh, um, and say that um, this uh, this country became a country uh, when we won the Revolutionary War against the British. And that war was essentially fueled from the pulpits of colonial churches. It was essentially a grand and glorious religious awakening in America. And it was essentially a religious movement. Uh, If you look at the pronouncements of um, General Washington, as he was the leader of the army at the time, and, and you'll see um, everybody was 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 absolutely convinced that this they were, were fulfilling God's wishes, and this was a a biblical um, prophecy coming true and so um, we're looking at at a country and it's it's pretty unique on the planet, formed by a religious revival and uh, and it's it's interesting that uh that there they've always been fountains of religious renewal um throughout the 19th century New York was an unbelievably fertile bed for sprouting of religious faith whether it was the, uh, the the Mennonites or the Quakers or the um um Uh, even the Mormons, the the Latter-day Saints themselves. So the the soil is fertile for religious renewal, and sure enough, middle of the 1800s, middle of the 19th century, uh, the battle against slavery begins, and the abolition movement is again. Whether it was Wilberforce in the United Kingdom or everyone in the United States, it was all religiously driven. And you could think of that as the second great religious reawakening in the United States of America. And uh, to answer your question, I, I think it's not unlikely that we may find ourselves on the threshold of a third great religious reawakening, which will, uh, I think, do a great deal to restore sanity to, to a very troubled land at the moment.
0: And uh, with that, uh, we'll wrap it up, and thanks again for coming on. You shared a lot of uh, enlightening information. Sure.
1: Sure. No, pleasure talking with you.
0: Right. appreciate it.
1: Thanks. You bet.